Yeah, welcome to everyone who's joining the webinar. We will get started at the top of the hour. Thank you to everyone who's joining. We will get started in another minute or so. Well, thank you to everyone who's joining the webinar today. I'll get started with our housekeeping. Uh, my name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, and glad you're joining for the webinar today. Uh, a huge thank you to uh, the DEI subcommittee of the SNEB Journal Committee uh, who organized this presentation. Um, I, will, I do have um, slides handout for each of our presenters. And as they present, I'll drop those into the meeting chat. Um, so you'll be able to download those from the chat and follow along with those uh, slides. Uh, we will take questions at the end of the webinar. So please type those in the Q&A or the chat block and um, we will moderate those to our panelists. Uh, when the webinar ends today, uh, there'll be a short survey, and we appreciate your feedback on this session, as well as um, any comments or additional ideas for future webinars. And then as a follow-up, um, watch for an email. You should receive that by Wednesday of this week with a link to the recording that we're making, um, the handouts again, and then the CEU certificate uh, that you're earning for your attendance. So I will turn things over to our moderator. Um, Pam Cook is the Mary Schwartz Rose Associate Professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, and a past president of the society. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Yes, a very proud past president of the society. Um, and I want to say that I use she, her pronouns. And I am really delighted to be able to moderate this talk that I think is going to be so dynamic among our three speakers. So let me introduce our speakers. We have Heather Shear, who is a doctoral candidate in the Ohio State Interdisciplinary PhD Program in Nutrition. 
Her current research focuses on the lived experiences and priorities of transgender and gender diverse youth and advocating for more inclusive practices and policies. Sarah Misjak is the Assistant Director and Program Manager for Evaluation for the Virginia Cooperative Extension Family Nutrition Program, the Virginia Implementing Agency for SNAP-Ed, and for FNEP. And Julie Reeder is a Senior Research Analyst at the Oregon Health Authority with the Women, Infants, and Children WIC program. And while she's not representing the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, she is an associate and an editor of JNEB. And I also want to say that all of our speakers are not representing where they work. They are representing themselves and their lived experiences and their processes with gender identity and sexual orientation reporting so that they are all, um, we are all speaking for ourselves. Let me just tell you a little bit how this is going to work today is it's going to be a question and answer format. And I have a question for each of the panelists that they will spend about five to seven minutes giving some background on because we thought that that background would be really helpful. And then I will have some questions that we will open it up for everyone to add in and, and speak about those questions. And then we will be definitely taking questions from all of you. So as Rachel said before, please put your questions into the question and answer function that I will be watching so we can add those in as well. So we're going to start it off with a question for Sarah. So Sarah, can you share where you think we are in terms of inclusivity and gender identity and sexual orientation reporting in the nutrition profession? Sure. So I'm going to share some slides real quick, just to let me put this in presenter mode. Um, does that look okay? Can you see it? Okay, great. So I think as far as where we are, the, the perspective that I can give is from a program that implements two USDA funded nutrition programs. So that's the Expanded Food Nutrition Education Program or FNEP and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program Education, or SNAP-Ed. So I know our program, at least, is really interested in creating inclusive spaces. And we know that our programming materials, including our data collection forms, help to frame whether or not people feel like that's a space for them. Um, and so we really asked ourselves, do people see themselves reflected in our forms? And years ago now, we submitted this paper to JNEB about the need to advance the field and really promote inclusion of LGBTQIA communities in nutrition programming. Um, but the reality of how our data collection has moved forward is actually a little bit more complex or about how we move forward and why. So we know we wanted, or we knew we wanted to allow for flexibility in reporting gender identity specifically. And where we ended up after that article was submitted was at least adding one more category. So we had female, male, and then other. And our diversity, equity, and inclusion um, initiatives coordinator <laughs> more recently brought up, you know, like it doesn't make people feel included when they have to be marked as an other. Um, so we really had to step back and say, well, okay, is now a, a time to really expand our data collection? But then some of the things that we ended up coming up against is our federal reporting. So we use WebNIRS for FNEP, and that's for the 
National Institute for Food and Agriculture, and we use EARS, which is the Education Administrative Reporting System, or we did for SNAPED. They're expanding or adopting a new online system now, but we used EARS for years for the Food Nutrition Service. And we didn't have ways to report more inclusive data. So we had to ask ourselves, well, how would we recode data to fit into female and male reporting categories? which actually made us really uncomfortable when we had to think about what that would look like in practice. So would we have to train our program support technicians who enter the data, or would I have to create an official document that says, this is how to recode people to fit within the federal reporting system? And this is just a screenshot you can see of the EARS form. And you can see there's only really female and male options. So what we ended up doing is we look to the USDA for guidance. And more recently, they have at least provided an additional response options. So I have two images for you. The one on the top is the WebNear system. And you see that we now, labeled under sex, <laughs> have female, male, prefer not to respond, and at least a category where we can put other options in there. And then the bottom is the PEARS system, which will be familiar to SNAP-Ed and Extension folks, um, where we have female, male, non-binary, prefer not to respond, and unknown. So now that we have more options, we can look at what our forms really look like without having to go through the process on our end of redefining how people identify in order to fit within federal reporting systems. So currently, we're in a good spot to move forward, whereas before we felt pretty limited. And that's where I'm going to turn it back, <laughs> stop sharing, but um, to you, Pam. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. That, start, that definitely starts to give people a lot to think about. And Julie, can you share your experiences in the state of Oregon with having forms that are more inclusive on how gender identity and sexual orientation are collected? And what was the process for getting these forms? and what is included in them. Thank you. Okay. Sorry here. I am sharing on the wrong side and I cannot go backwards somehow. Um, one moment, please. Well, thank you for having me. So I'm gonna share with you a little bit about what the state of Oregon has done and how that came to be. Uh, and what what created that. So just sorry about that. Okay. I will share again. There we go. Perfect. So actually, our journey started quite a long time ago here, back in 2013. So that's almost 10 years ago. And this was really something that came from our state legislature on behalf of uh, some coalitions of communities of color, and specifically the Asian Pacific American Network, APANO, and the Oregon Health Equity Alliance. And their concern, and rightfully so, was that they didn't see themselves often reflected in, in the data, given our limited data choices. You know, if you think about 
the federal categories, those are pretty limiting. So way back 10 years ago, this, this House bill was passed and it required the Oregon Department of Human Services, so the social services side of, of state government, as well as the Oregon Health Authority to develop data collection standards. And that became our real D, our race, ethnicity, language, and disability standards um, that we have now. Um, and those got, speaking government talk that got codified into our Oregon administrative rules in 2014. Um, and then a lot of work to, to make those particular uh, things happen. So for example, we had to put together crosswalks um, from a myriad of possibilities. If you have 20 or so race and uh, race and ethnicity categories, how do you put those possibly into the federal, the federal five, you know, if, if you think about it like that. So there's an extensive work and those things that I can share in the chat if you'd like to see how we have done crosswalks um, for both CDC and HRSA, HRSA data sets which correspond with most of the things that would happen with, with USDA, for example. Um, and then continuing, uh, we were working the COVID uh, pandemic in 2020. Um, there was a House Bill 4212 that required us to collect real D information while we were doing COVID contact tracing and, and case investigation to provide us a lot more information uh, about this. And so I know we're here to talk about sexual orientation and gender identity, which I will hear on the next slide, but I wanted to put this in proper context that the, our SOGI work didn't just come out of of nowhere, right? First, it really came from community groups that were saying, we're not being seen, we're not being heard, we're not being counted. And counted is important because counting helps you get power, right? It's an identity. Um, and so that was a huge issue, right? So similarly, um, what happened here is that in 2018, the Oregon Health Authority, the Office of Equity and Inclusion, we have an Office of Equity and Inclusion, they convened a sexual orientation and gender identity data collection work group. So again, this is five years ago uh, now that we started on this. Um, and it had internal and external stakeholders. And I think that's really critical um, that you really have to involve the communities about which, you know, you're trying to collect data because it's, it's, you cannot just imagine what others would choose as the response options. Um, and so that actually broke up into six subcommittees and it did everything from very like specific clinical encounters to behavioral and mental health out through what you would need, let's say, if you were a SNAP eligibility worker. So there are sort of really six different layers because as you can imagine with sexual orientation and gender identity, uh, need to know things uh, differs very if you're trying to, to provide really specific clinical services for, versus if you're really trying to uh, verify identity and eligibility. And you'll see that in a second here with our forms. And so again, I really wanna to talk to you about process. Not only were these six groups uh, that worked together and again, internal, external, people from the LGBTQAI plus communities that were brought into this. Then there was also a lot of survey work done with the drafts. Um, for example, like how did you feel a question about ask, being asked, what is your title, right? That was one that was triggering, and we'll talk about that in a second. What should the response options be for what your sexual orientation or gender identity be? Um, how did those responses differ between people who were trans or, or identified as gay or uh, were professionals, folks who would actually be asking these in the service um, setting? 
And so that was very helpful. And so again, I know we'll get to this, but if you take anything away, it's really being community driven, you as the humble listener and learner um, and keeping going out and asking and asking and asking, you know, are we getting this right? How can we get this more right? Um, So that's what I wanted to share with you. And then in 2021, we had Oregon House Bill 3159 that updated some of the earlier requirements to to real de-reporting and, you know, requires us all now to collect the sexual orientation and gender identity information. So this is the law here um, in Oregon and will be standard across all sorts of different settings. So it's not just public health, but also social services, any kind of healthcare um, setting. So we hope that in the future that this becomes the, the norm for us. We do still need to go through, because we're the government, uh, <laughs> rules advisory committee, which will start here in 2023. And then that will be sort of our final um, version of these things. But let me uh, show you a quick peek here what this is looking like. And I'm sorry, this is small, um, but as you can see, and so for gender, right? We have, you can choose girl, woman, boy, man, non-binary, agender, no gender, questioning. We have a not listed listed. We also have an, I don't want to answer. That's okay. And then we also have an, I don't know what this question is asking. For example, we do have a question asking if they are transgender. And you can note too, that we have a lot of the open-end response choices, right? So please describe your gender in any way you prefer. And please describe your sexual orientation in any way that you prefer. And then for sexual orientation or sexual identity, you can see that we have, again, many choices, same gender loving, same sex loving, lesbian, gay, pansexual, uh, straight, attracted mainly to only other gender, asexual, queer, questioning, don't know, um, and not listed. And again, I, I don't know how to answer. And so these are sort of our basic five um, that will be everywhere. And then there are some different options based on the type of encounter that that you're in. So the next one that I'll show you really quickly here is for more in the service setting. Um, And I I didn't show you, but I can put it in the uh, chat if you'd like to see that. The ones that are really for medical settings where it is more appropriate to ask about absence or presence of certain body parts or, or, you know, hormone treatment or that sort of things, things that you would need if you were really a clinical provider. So, but what you're looking at here are sort of the basic, the basic five demographic questions that will be appearing everywhere um, for sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, And then this next one, sorry, it's kind of (laughs) long here, Um, but this is more, so you're um, signing people up for SNAP, for example, or things where you'd need these types of, this type of basic uh, information or to verify identity and eligibility. And so we've got questions about what name do you want us to use? Um, Is is that your legal name? Again, to try to verify identity and eligibility. Um, are there other names that we should know about, be aware of, you know, if you're having to check insurance status or that sort of thing. We asked about what pronouns um, this person would like us to address them as. Um, and then this one, <laughs> we, this was, this came back from the surveys was a lot about um, asking, being cautious about asking about title. Some people felt that was not a comfortable thing to do. Um, But if you are someone, a group that does correspondence where you say, dear Ms. So-and-so, this this would be included. So that's optional. Um, We also talk a little bit about uh, 
sex assignment at birth, what that particular piece was. Um, and then skipping down uh, very quickly, because I want time for others, we do sort of address the issue about, you know, for federal reporting purposes, <laughs> there are two options. And so if you, you know, if you were choosing one, which, which one would that be? Um, and I'm not saying that that is the perfect solution, but that that at least gives people power in thinking about what they they might uh, might end up with for federal reporting processes. The last piece that I wanted to tell you, um, again, because this is all a continuum, is that a lot of this really is in service of this bigger concept of data justice, right? And so one, it's recognizing that government doesn't bestow justice, right? This is really, I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but just really for data justice, it has to be community-led and sharing power. And so it's recognizing though that there are there is power in what is data. Um, and so it, it's recognizing that the typical way that we collect data um, doesn't often reflect the identities and the desires of the community. It recognizes the value of different types of data, right? And it really shares community-led ways of, of thinking through data. Um, so I guess that's the piece that I wanted to put, put this out for you, is that our efforts here for Real D for SOGI, um, and now we actually are doing things with meaningful language access, um, so not just counts of who, who speaks what, that they really are in service of this larger data justice issue. Um, so with that, thank you. Uh, thanks for your patience with my PowerPointing as well. No, thank you, Julie. That was super, super helpful. And I agree with you that one of the main messages is really making sure that we're involving community and that all of those voices are heard. So Heather, given what we just learned about where Oregon is at um, and their experiences on more inclusive reporting of gender identity and sexual orientation, where do you think we need to go and what research do we need? Yes, thank you. I'll give you one change the presentation. Go. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm excited to share a little bit about thinking about SOGI data collection from the nutrition research lens. Um, so here, um, I have no um, conflict of interest to report here today. And Orient does, I would really love to share three, to me, really important resources that have become available in the last year that I think really help us, especially as nutrition researchers, navigate how and when we're collecting this data and what we're doing with that data to move the needle towards health equity. So recently, um, the subcommittee on SOGI data through the National Science and Technology Council produced this really great, really in-depth um, federal evidence agenda. Um, and I'm just going to share a few highlights from this, but I, I'll share a link to this if anybody wants to take a deeper look at this. Um, and in this report, um, they state that SOGI data are demographic data, right? So they should be considered basic and essential data um, that we're collecting with any other demographic data. Um, they also state that data collection should start immediately. Um, we do have enough knowledge currently to responsibly begin collecting this data, as both Sarah and Julie have showed us some examples of how it can be done. Um, and at this stage, we actually have had opportunities to test um, those methods pretty extensively. It doesn't mean, like they said, it doesn't mean it's perfect, um, but we do have tools, so we don't need to um, delay 
collecting this data any further. Um, another big takeaway from the, the agenda is that SOGI data have the most utility when they are disaggregated. So like we have done in the past with race and ethnicity, we collapse, we have this tendency of collapsing data for several reasons. However, that tends to lead to misinterpretation of your findings. Um, and particularly for the LGBTQI plus population, experiences differ tremendously um, across groups. So it really is essential um, as long as we can um, abide by standard data, data steward practices to ensure safety and trust within the community. Um, it's really important to ensure that we're disaggregating um, to the best of our ability across subgroups. And then the last um, takeaway I wanted to share from this report is that SOGI data must be used to serve the community, of course, right? This is something we all know, but we just have to remember it's not enough to collect the data, but thinking really intentionally about what we do with this data, right? And so in this report, they share that federal agencies must be committed to using SOGI data um, to better serve um, the LGBTQI plus community. Um, so really hoping that they can put these words into practice um, by expanding some of those systems so that we don't have to collapse data after we collect it into those really limited practices that Julie and Sarah have shared. So this is a recent report, so stay tuned to see what actually occurs and how we move forward um, on the federal agency side, but certainly we can apply this to nutrition research as well. Uh, and then two other resources that I want to share, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and, and Medicine uh, produced this really great report last year that helps provide recommendations on how to measure sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation, particularly in a research setting. Um, and then myself and our team, um, kind of around the same time, um, uh, produced a commentary that's published through the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. That is a really nice complement to that report, but kind of narrows the focus on nutrition research. So that might be a helpful resource as well. And in both reports, um, I'll offer an example of what we're advocating for, which is when thinking about sex and gender, being very careful and intentional and remembering that those are separate constructs and that we should be querying them separately if you're capturing both elements, right? So of course, whether or not you ask these questions will be dependent on your research question and your objective. Um, but if you're asking about sex, um, we recommend asking what sex um, that individual is assigned at birth. And then following with a second question that asks about what their current gender is. Now, there are many limitations to these, right? But these are the current most evidence-based practices and that these are the practices that have been most extensively tested um, for validity. Um, so I'll kind of uh, get at that on the next slide. Um, but essentially here what we see is for sex, we're, we're capturing female, male, don't know, prefer not to answer. And then with gender, um, capturing female, male, transgender, two-spirit. I use a different term. The essential piece to this is that there's free text for individuals to self-identify um, or disclose um, with autonomy. And then a don't know or prefer not to answer. So again, as you could probably imagine, there are lots of limitations to this, um, which leads us to a research opportunity for us, right? We can now, we can um, further develop these questions and responses and test them um, for greatest validity. Um, so as you may have noticed, the cur that current recommendation does not include a response for intersex 
or it does, and it does not capture other variations in sex characteristics. Um, and we see a lot of limitations to gender identity, right? We don't have that, those more expansive options like uh, non-binary and gender fluid. We also have to continuously think about how these terms will evolve over time and have practices in place so that we can ensure that we're collecting data um, and um, kind of um, harmonizing that data um, in, a, in an accurate way as those terms do evolve. And then finally, we need to translate and test questions to other languages to ensure that they are culturally appropriate. And again, so folks can accurately um, answer those questions across different languages. So as we start to collect OD data, it really opens things up for us as researchers to better understand the needs of the population, right? Which is so essential to starting to realize health equity across groups. Um, so I've just kind of the next this next this slide will um, outline a three different topics, kind of like buckets of areas that we need to explore further that this data will allow us um, to do. So the first being more prevalence data, right? Understanding the quantity of folks with specific experiences or characteristics. And we're really going to be leaning on national surveys for this, but that's going to require those national surveys to collect SOGI data. So thinking about our national gems like NHANES currently does not collect gender identity, um, but in accordance with these really large um, um, hallmark reports, we're really hopeful and optimistic that that will change in, in the next few years. The next bucket is how experiences within systems differ across folks, right? So this could also look like large scale um, analysis or smaller, more in-depth surveys, qualitative mixed methods work and community-based participatory research. Um, again, really working closely with the community to understand their experiences um, across people. And again, um, having that SOGI data is gonna allow us to explore this further and then harmonize that data um, across research groups, databases, et cetera. Um, and then finally, the third bucket is whether policies and interventions work and who are they working for? Um, so collecting this data is going to allow us to assess the effectiveness of different programs across groups, right? Um, but this certainly will rely on administrative data. Um, so that further demonstrates the kind of urgency of integrating SOGI data in administrative settings so that we can start assessing the effectiveness of programs. And finally, I just want to um, leave us with a, a large research question or priority of the government currently, um, which can be helpful as we're strategizing and, and planning out our, our research agendas moving forward. And one of them is how can the federal government promote, um, excuse me, um, equitable access to and engagement in federal programs, benefits, and funding opportunities for eligible LGBTQI plus people? Um, so I just shared a few research questions that are probably re relevant to this group, which is what are the rates of participation across subgroups in federal benefits pro benefit programs like SNAP and WIC, and how does it compare to non-LGBTQ um, plus folks, right? And we can ask those same questions about what social, economic, and programmatic factors account for observed differences. Um, how can we explain engagement rates and, and barriers to participation, et cetera? So these are really essential questions that, of course, we can't ask if we're not collecting that SOGI data. Um, so anyway, that's kind of my um, kind of um, introduction to what we can be thinking about from a nutrition research lens. 
Thank you. And I know in all of our conversations we had about planning for this, it was we need to collect the data in order to get to the inclusion and equity issues and to be able to utilize it. So we certainly need to have it in order to be able to utilize it. So now after those introductions, we are going to be transitioning into the discussion part of our webinar. I want to remind everyone that you can put your questions into the question and answer uh, or question section, and then we will answer your questions. So my first question is, um, for all of you, is who can share some insights on listening to and engaging with communities with gender identity and sexual orientation reporting? Heather, maybe you want to start. Sure. Um, spaces, yeah. 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 So I'm also excited to hear what Julie has to say. And Sarah, I know Julie has um, experience with this as well. Um, yeah, so it's so critical that we are working closely with the community um, as equitable. Um, again, I'm going to speak about this from a, a research lens as equitable members of the research team when we're when we're testing and improving these practices. Um, so, you know, what does that really look like in practice? I can speak from from our research group. We have everything that we produce is tested uh, among the the. Um, target population. Um, and again, just really ensuring that we're taking the time um, to to test those different, um, whether it be a survey that you're that you're wanting to administer um, and and getting insight into, you know, you know, wh what kind of responses do folks want to see? Um, but then also, what does that look like um, and, and how you're using that data? So just being really careful, um, I think that's a key thing too here is being really careful with how we're reporting data um, and communicating with the, the community about um, any concerns that they have. Um, I can think of an example, right, with the work that we're doing, um, we're really careful about how, not only how we're going to be reporting on this data, but even our direct interactions, right? So working with trans and gender diverse youth, their caregiver may um, drop them off at data collection and I'm very careful to not use any names or pronouns during those interactions because we don't always know if caregiver is aware of their chosen name and pronouns. So it's kind of things like that, which I know is getting a little bit away from reporting and more so what that, um, which is what that participant or, or, or um, patient facing time can look like. So just all that to say, right, we just have to take it that next level and be very mindful and respectful and careful um, that we're not. Um, doing any harm in the way that we're sharing about data or reporting data. Julie, do you want to share some? I know you talked about how much community was involved in developing your SOGI form. Absolutely. It needs to come from community. I mean, I know our tendency is often we develop it and then we test it upon, right? And it really, that's that's not the best, the best way to go about it is what I would say is that it needs to be... We, sometimes we get so caught up in valid, you know, and validity is important, just throwing that in there, but valid to whom, right? And I think that's that's a really key piece sort of with, when we think about developing, developing these data collection tools um, with and led by um, community is, is really key. Again, I tried to emphasize how long did this process take on our end and it's still ongoing because of that, that community involvement piece and keeping going back out to the community and saying, 
which of these which of these are resonating with you and which are potentially troubling. Um, and you know, I didn't have time to get into that, but there are some things that we really need to think about. Are we are we inflicting more trauma by the way that we're asking these things are potentially um, gender dysphoria? Um, and that came up a little more on the clinical sections that we didn't we didn't go over, but I think there are some real things um, to think about. As programs too, I would say maybe we need to be really honest with ourselves, like, you know, we can snap better, kind of pretty heteronormative, cisgendery kind of, of programs underlying. So how are we making a space, right, that really, really encourages people to, to share their identities with us and that we're able to affirm and support according to their needs. So um, that's those are my thoughts. Thanks feel comfortable doing it. I'm sure if we could see the files to get to where you got to with your SOGI form, there would be so many versions with different things that were done as you were having these conversations. Mm -hmm. Sarah, I know you can share a little bit about um, nutrition practitioners' experiences. Yeah, I can, I can definitely speak to some nutrition <laughs> practitioner experiences. So I would say that we have some practitioners in the state who would really embrace changes to reporting and programming to develop more inclusive practices. And then to be honest, we have some who, who would not. So part of our work is really our, our DEI initiatives coordinator has developed a training plan that we need to implement on our end for our administrative team and staff across the state, um, just so that we're at least moving towards wanting to create a more inclusive climate for all groups. Um, but we've also had to think about the political climate for educators in the field, which is something else that can be a little sticky. So um, there are areas where more inclusive data collection won't be well received and it could impact our educators' abilities to work with certain partners, schools, or individuals. So for instance, we had a bill pass the House in Virginia requiring parental notification of students identify as trans at school. And I know Heather spoke a little bit about this, but you just have to be really mindful that if we're asking for that data, what position does that put teachers in? What position does that put students in? Um, and these are all things that we're having to think of on behalf of our practitioners before they go out into the field and what they can really, what they can really do. Thank you. Um, very, very important. We've touched a little bit on some benefits of this more inclusive reporting. Who would like to add on to why this has real benefits? You kick us off, um, right? So the it, it's not just about the the inclusion piece, but also just that general respect and autonomy that we are providing participants and, and clients and, and patients. Um, that's really huge. And then from a, a research lens, a, ne a less sexy response is just the, the accuracy of the data that we're collecting, right? So if we're, if we're conflating sex and gender, that's a real issue when it comes to construct validity at a, a very basic demographic variable, right? So I think, um, that there's a huge, huge uh, benefit to, to this from a research lens um, to just be more accurate with the way that we're collecting and, and using data. And I'll add, you know, if we don't, we're going to continue to do harm, 
I mean, that's the straight answer to that is that we will continue to marginalize already marginalized communities, further, you know, leave people invisible um, at a time when people feel that they're they're trying to be erased, right? And so when we don't allow people to 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 be seen and to be heard in the data and have power and ownership over that data, again, back to the bigger data justice role, um, we, we, you know, we can't do that. And again, you know, coming from government and public health, you know, that's a different set of responsibilities and relationships than maybe you would have in, in academia. But I think that's a responsibility for all of us, right? To think about what what are we doing and how are we helping um how are we helping empower um the communities that that often aren't seen or and aren't shown in the data um, and thinking about intersectionality as well what this data can tell us so. yeah no i i think that's really really important and i think sarah related to what you you said about um you know some people are not as enthusiastic about collecting this. And then we have a question of populations voice any concerns about government documentation of gender identity. Um, from the from the population who are gender diverse, ha has there been any pushback of this in any way or embracing of it? Or how has that been? I can start with it. <laughs> But saying that, I think, honestly, we don't know when it gets down to who's already feels included in your program. So it's so much easier to reach people who already feel comfortable enrolling in your programming. So if, if we're not reaching populations, then we don't know whether or not our practices are appropriate or whether or not they're valid. So at least from our perspective. I would say since it's the law here, you know, that this will be something that occurs in all spaces that you interact with. So over time, that should help normalize it. You are always free to decline, right, to, to do this if you are concerned or if that trust is not there. Um, there's also going to be training, uh, trainings for staff. And, and you know, I only had so many slides and so much time, but along with the bill that um, required SOGI data collection, there's actually money in there as well for trainings for community-based organizations to do culturally um, and appropriate uh, data collection within the communities for this. So, um, that's that's the case. And just for like for our real D, there are whole scripts and teaching aids that help you, you know, when you're trying to do just race and ethnicity and someone says, well, I'm human, check human, right? How you how do you deal with that? You know, um, you know, they hear that you're having some difficulty with this question. So um, yeah, so that's the case. So we 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 collect all sorts of things, right? That that someone might might object to. So I think that's our outside of, of these things. And so I think it's our it's our ability, it's our job then to build the skills to help people with that and help them understand why we're asking this. We're asking this because we want to make sure that our services are working for everybody, right? No matter who they are and where they are. And so, you know, I appreciate, I can see this is making you a little bit uncomfortable. But, you know, if you just bear with me a little bit, or I can just mark down that, you know, you weren't ready to answer right now. So I, I think there are strategies that we can do rather than fearing, right? Right, right. And you can say that's easier for you, maybe where, where you are in, in your climate, but I think that's the case. So thanks. 
What are other obstacles with this uh, more extensive reporting and how could we overcome them? I can speak to you again from the research lens or kind of what we've heard from um, you know, agencies that oversee some of our larger um, surveillance programs. Um, the big ones that always come up are fear around um, disclosure risk, right? So for example, with NHANES, certainly there, there is a, that is one of their major concerns. Um, statistical power, right? With smaller populations, there's that, there's a, a concern there as well. Um, those are some of the big ones that certainly come to mind. Um, but there's also some really great solutions to those as well, um, which we have examples of with similar smaller populations, right? Um, where you can be really careful about the way that things are reported, or right there, there are all these practices in place to 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 protect that data. Um, whether that mean um, pulling that data over a longer duration of time, over several years rather than one year, et cetera. So there are there are definitely ways of going about that. Um, and that's something that's outlined in some of those resources I shared that, um, you know, they do a really nice job of highlighting those barriers and opportunities to overcome. How about, has it, um, Heather, have you ever thought about or encountered um, confidentiality with research that, you know, sometimes in, in a group there may be with with smaller groups, only one or two people that identify in a certain way and wanting to make sure that there's confidentiality. How do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that is a, that that and that's one of the um, very specific um, concerns when it came to NHANES is if we have a single individual in this very tiny town in this one area and then we make that data public is, you know, could somebody um, in theory, go in and access that individual's data, knowing that they're the one trans person in that town or something like that, right? So I think the suggestions for those types of scenarios is to, um, then we get into, in the way that you're reporting, either collapsing data, which is not ideal, but it may be necessary, again, to safeguard in individuals, um, or again, maybe you broaden your geographic area wider. Or again, you 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 report that data out over several years, so it's a little bit harder to identify um, who that specific individual is. So there are some strategies like that that can be used to help safeguard those folks' data. And in many communities, there probably are many more trans people that just may not be as open about it, and and so it you know, but but we, and we still have to safeguard people. Sarah, how about the political environment? What obstacles does that have? Yeah, I mean, I would I'd say Julie already touched on that a little bit. Like it's uh, Virginia is a different political climate than Washington. <laughs> and um, I would say that it can be harder to move forward with more inclusive data collection if there's not necessarily that support, um, especially in schools when you're working with schools, but also just at the individual level. So. Um, Part of it's feeling what our climate can and is willing to give on so that we can keep moving forward. Like we don't want to just not move forward, but if we are training people to deal with um, like, how do you, because we also collect already sensitive information like monthly income, people don't like sharing that. So if we're able to push on monthly income or yearly income, 
then we can probably push on gender identity, but there has to be the will to do so on the organizational level. And I will say we've done, you know, racial equity assessments, we've done um, accessibility assessments at our organization, but we have not done an assessment for LGBT um, I plus population. So that's also on us. And we can look at what else we're doing besides just data collection that makes it an inclusive space for all populations. Can I add something to that sort of on the safety issue? I think that goes back to data justice, right? When tools are co-created and validated by the communities, right, that, that is, and they have ownership, at least equal ownership, if not so ownership, then you're able to take that, that data and, and do things that are powerful within that community. We already have tons of examples of data that is weaponized, you know, across the board, right, towards towards different groups. And so um, that's about putting us us as the system, right, um, is, is with that. So again, really taking that time and really engaging with community, which sometimes means taking a back seat, right, um, and saying, how should this look? How, how do you want to use this? Why is this important to you? What, what will this type of data collection make possible? I think that helps decrease you know, the risks, not that we don't still run into small number issues, um, but still, you know, many, many communities for other issues have felt unseen and unheard over the small numbers excuse, right, for, for years. And I think this is, this is no different here. So it's that power sharing and data for justice, not data just for data's sake. I love to the idea of what does having these data make possible? Um, so on that is we can have this more inclusive data, and we've already touched on, I think all of you in one way or another have touched on how federal reporting requirements can be challenging because you're having to collapse the data. Is there anything else that anyone wants to add on, on that, on the, how do, how do we make more inclusive data fit into federal reporting? make federal reporting more inclusive, but. <laughs> All right, so that's what we have to work on next, right? Okay, anything else? Well, I actually wanna second what Julie was just saying because we've heard this not just around gender identity, but just equity. The word equity right now can create, uh, it's not a great environment for people sometimes, um, including implementing agencies for federal programs. And, People are looking to the USDA and other, you know, funders, federal funders to really set standards as far as data reporting and programming so that we can be more inclusive. So I, I think that was a really valid point. Thank you. What else does anyone want to share about participants' um, experiences? with this more inclusive reporting, either people that have had a very positive experience or more challenging experiences. I can speak a little bit about my experience um, working with trans and gender diverse youth. Overwhelmingly, we're met with like appreciation, not just for the work that's being done, but for, for doing so in a really affirming way. And, you know, we work really closely with community partners and they're also, the buy-in has just been overwhelming for us and 
and really moving. Um, but folks aren't asking for a lot, right? They're just so appreciative of like using proper pronouns and you know taking that extra step or or having forms um, where you know when they're filling out, for example, the informed consent form, they're very concerned that they have to include their legal name versus their chosen name and reassuring them your chosen name is the correct name. Like that's what we that's our expectation and that is that is correct, right? And making them know that those aren't the other options that they are the correct options. So I just think, you know, the appreciation that folks express um, almost makes you emotional because they shouldn't have to feel so, you know, it should be the norm, right? And so it's just, I think as we keep pushing in that direction um, of normalizing this practice, um, it's just a really powerful thing. And I, I, I think that that is, is, going to have just a really huge impact. So yeah, I would just say, you know, the appreciation that you you feel from folks is really, really huge. I would, I guess I would just say it, it comes also comes back to cleaning our own house first, you know, so I'm coming from WIC. So WIC is sort of obvious in the name there. Uh, for women, infants, and children, but it's thinking through all of our processes. Like, do you have a data system that's still, you're either the pink growth grid or the blue growth grid, and there, there's there's no choice there. What if uh, you have a family, and this has occurred with us, that doesn't wish to, wish to choose a gender identity for their child at this time? How are we handling and accommodating families where maybe two, uh, one, one is birthing and then a second partner is going to be lactating as, as well? Um, so I think it's that's that's what I'd encourage encourage us as the nutrition community to do as a whole is really take a hard look, not just at our data collection procedures, but just how we do business. Period. Right. Um, and and that I think that would really help to make both the participant in this and the staff experience better. Um, again, I agree that it'll be easier for for me because this is the state and what's going to be happening all over. But I think there's some really good things for us um, to to reflect upon and and the competencies that that we're putting forth right in in our um, dietetics programs, other types of nutrition related programs, bulk health, and so forth. So, thank you. Sarah, do you want to add anything on at this time? I don't feel like I can speak specifically to participant experiences, except to say that we do have a lot of practices that probably exclude um, people who don't identify as male or female off the bat. Like for a long time, we also have programs that were specifically for mothers of young children and, and who does that leave out? So we've at least started to switch some of our language to caregivers of young children and, and thinking even more broadly about just who has access to our programs. Um, I think it will be a big step as opposed to just the gender identity reporting. And I think it, 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 it can go so far to have the, like we, it can be so meaningful to have these more inclusive practices. And when we stop and think about it, 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 it's not that big of a switch, but it's a huge switch for the people whose lives it's impacting, you know? And so um, so I wanna get to our, our final question. And again, for the participants, please put any questions that you have into the chat um, so that we can answer those. And so my, the final question is, 
Where do you hope that we go as a nutrition profession, as the Society for Nutrition Education and Behavior to be more inclusive in gender identity and sexual orientation reporting, as well as then all of our practices? So I think for me, again, I mentioned this earlier, normalizing these practices is huge. So that's a great way that we celebrate gender diversity is by normalizing it. And we have a real opportunity to do that through these you know, documentation type of mundane practices. Um, we can really help um, normalize gender diversity in that way. Um, but then also on the practice side, right? So something that Julie mentioned is improved training. Um, so that's a huge thing, right, for our dietetic interns and other nutrition professionals, ensuring that they're provided with the, the education and the training they need to, to be affirming um, and, and best support their, their patients across genders and sexual orientation. So I'm really hoping to see more of that moving forward, improving our competencies, but also just normalizing these practices, um, yeah, as we move forward. So I appreciate things like this, like this webinar, which please let us have conversations, but also on the journal side, I know that, you know, gender inclusive date or gender inclusive language is encouraged and required. So I think things like that also help when you see it every time you read an article and, and it's something that comes back to you in a, in a journal review, um, that it does help to normalize, to normalize the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to by clean our own house first, right? And do some real reflecting on, on the prog our programs and programming um, and really repairing relationships with communities because often we're very extractive, you know, if we're honest about our, our work with communities. Um, and again, sometimes I would say speaking up for, but often more it's stepping back and realizing that you're not the most important seat at that table, that someone else should be in that seat. Um, because if you look at our legislation that came forward, that was brought forth by community, right? Um, and so I think that's that's really the pieces is how how do you, how how are you an ally to that? I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say it that way too, to helping communities speak to the importance of their visibility through data collection and otherwise. Um, and again, co-ownership, shared ownership. So that's the, that's what I'd say. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of you talked about that it would be really important to have workshops for people who will be collecting these data as well as using these data. Um, we, I'm sure people would love to hear any positive stories that you had that people who may have been hesitant about this had aha moments with different experiences. Well, I'll say for the race, ethnicity, disability training, you know, when we first were testing things with local agency staff, you know, I mean, there's the recognition always, oh, this is more stuff I have to collect, right? Because that's the practical programs to point. But even there, it's like, wow, it's actually nice to see myself in this where I couldn't see that before, right? With the with the federal. <laughs> so so I think that that was great. So that balance of, of course, yes, that that is a more burden, but even for our own staff at the local agency level you know, who have never been able to, to see themselves in the same way in that. So thanks. Yeah. 
Yeah. And how much inclusive, inclusivity matters, you know, like we all want to be able to, to see ourselves and feel othered when one, like what was put up, I think by, by Sarah at the beginning, like what it feels like to be, have to put other, you know, um, is, is really important. Heather. Yeah. I just wanted to, um, add the first thing that comes to mind. It's been really neat to watch, um, students that I work with have those moments where kind of like what you're talking about, Julie, of like cleaning house, they're recognizing, oh, this survey that we're using for this USDA project is really limited and that's not okay. And can we talk about how we're going to, you know, address this moving forward? So it's really neat to see students aware of this um, and identifying those limitations of these kind of older practices or like the status quo. Of, oh, we've always collected data this way. And now they're questioning it like, oh, that's seem right. What can we do to be better? So that's pretty neat. That is really neat. Well, Rachel, I will turn it back over to you to close us out for our final minute. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for an excellent presentation. Um, just a reminder, watch for an email on Wednesday of this week with a link to um, the recording, the handouts, and the CEU certificate that you earned for your attendance. And when I close the webinar, there'll be a short survey. Uh, we appreciate your feedback on this session, as well as any follow-up ideas for future webinars. Um, and thank you to anyone who is joining us who is not a member of SNEB. Um, SNEB members know that free webinars are a member benefit. And in this case, if you did join as a non-member and wanted to apply the cost of your uh, registration for this webinar to a membership, I'll be following up with you by email and ask if you would like to do that. Um, and so just a reminder that the Journal Club webinar series um, looking at digital technology and nutrition education resumes next Monday uh, at um, noon. And so that those webinars are listed on the SNEB website. And so please go there to register. And again, thank you all for joining us today and for the panelists for the excellent presentation. Yes, thank you, Heather, Julie, and Sarah. Amazing. Thank you.